Welcome to Manager Tools. First meeting with a new direct series, over communicate. This cast answers these questions. What should I cover with my new directs? What are the key messages to give to new team members? How can I communicate my priorities? Well, if you want answers to these and more, keep listening. Here we go. You asked and we delivered. On April 9th and 10th, we'll be hosting our first ever conference event in Kansas City. We'll be there with both the Effective Manager and the Effective Communicator conferences. You can attend one or both. That's completely up to you. But if you want to see us return in 2020, we're going to need to see a good turnout. So pass on the word and let's make this event a huge success. Register today at manager-tools.com forward slash training. See you there. Mark, when someone joins our team, one of the first things we do, or the first thing we do, is we communicate very early on about our key priorities. And one of those priorities is communication, right? Yeah, everybody skips it because we don't have to think about it. We all just do it. Seems obvious, our, right? Yeah, as, as our friend um, Trevor Woods often says, one of his favorite quotes is, don't confuse the edge of your rut with the horizon. We all are so comfortable in our own communication. We don't talk about the most important thing that knits the organization together other than perhaps mission. It is the most important behavior that knits an organization together. And, you know, in the first month or two, maybe, you've got a unique opportunity to communicate key values. After that first month or two, they're going to be down in the minutia of their work and their habits will already be calcifying a little bit in such a way that it'll be hard to change them. So in earlier guidance, we recommended managers have a first meeting with their new team member. We encourage you to recommend to your directs some always applicable, often not communicated guidance, like be honest, be kind, achieve results. And then we recommended you extend that because we don't want a two-hour meeting full of eight or nine really important concepts that probably will all get lost in the mail. And so we recommend a series of weekly meetings to kick off key priorities for you. And this guidance continues our recommendations, and it's about communication. And if you're a longtime Manager Tools listener, you know we're going to communicate about communication until you're annoyed. And that means probably we've done almost enough. As Horseman's Law of Organizational Communication goes, tell your people something seven times, and half of them will tell you they've heard it once. Yeah. Well, my ADD is is kicking in a little bit, so I'll just mention one thing that has little to do with this show, um, perhaps. But, you know, the idea of taking those important things and breaking them up and communicating about them over several meetings is incredibly useful. And folks, let's say you have seven meetings, you have seven points you want to cover. Don't miss the opportunity to highlight one of those things in your first meeting. And then over the course of the next week or two, prior to your second meeting, reinforce that message several times so it becomes very clear to them that you just shared something that's important. And then the second meeting, right, you have the opportunity to do that again and again. So it's it, it, there's usefulness in spreading it out over time so they're not overwhelmed, but there's also usefulness in being, being able to reinforce that over some period of time. Okay, so basic outline here. This meeting is part of weekly series. We recommend you have it first meeting of the morning on a given day you're doing it. Sometimes it makes it harder, but it adds to the strength of the uh, value, the message being communicated. 
you know, even if it's not your way in your organization, I think sending a meeting request is a way, again, to elevate the message a little bit. You don't have to do those things, but we've discovered that when you do have a meeting in the morning and you do have a meeting request, it elevates things. You want to remind them that this is a chance for them to update you outside of your one-on-one, assuming you're doing one-on-ones, or maybe you're not yet. I don't know why you'd wait too long, but uh, this would be a chance for that. And then let's talk finally about the, the guidance on over-communicating. And so the first couple of bullets are really just uh, the mechanics of this process to be clear about how to do it. Part of a weekly series is really, this meeting is part of a series of meetings about your expectations and the values of your team, right? You want to avoid getting your new hire off on the wrong foot. I was having dinner last night with a good friend of mine, Pat Welton. He talked about exponential functions and and the difference between a 5% and a 10% return and how... Uh, you know, if you waited 15 years, if you have a 5 or 10% annual return, what percentage of the total return you'll have in 10 years come from that second 5%? And it's a great deal. Meaning, if you can start your people off on a little higher trajectory a little earlier, you reap benefits from that for years and years and years. And because you've probably forgotten what it's like to be a new direct, that not understanding and not knowing and not having worked in place where the values are different is not helpful. It slows people down. It makes them uncomfortable, makes them maybe hesitant to take risks or to share things with you. So the sooner you can be clear about these things, the better. You know, there are too many new hires whose performance is nearly forever hampered by a lack of ability to conform to norms of behavior that were unspoken and everyone just takes them for granted. Oh, we do it that way. Sorry, nobody told you. You have to know what it is you do and tell people so that they first aren't embarrassed at a granular level, but also so that uh, they know what to do and they feel like they're a part of the organization. It's just crazy to have that kind of loss of potentiality and performance because those norms were never clearly communicated because they were assumed. Most managers, in my experience, pretty quickly forget about new hires. They think the hard part, hiring is over. In fact, the moment the person accepts, most managers go, maybe not 80%, maybe more than 50% to go, I'm done with that and move on to something else. The project is completed, the person accepted. Of course, our onboarding guidance, and if you don't know, folks, we have some great casts on onboarding. And for licensees, we have an onboarding checklist that's an interactive cell spreadsheet with red, amber, and green, and so on. Onboarding is hugely important to cement the value of the investment you've already made. But even then, if we get them on board, they're like, oh, okay, they're here. And so now they'll learn and they'll, they'll absorb everything we do culturally and so on. And, you know, it takes more than a week to detect if somebody on your team is getting off on the wrong foot. And if... We don't do much in terms of initial meetings. Some new directs will think their onboarding process is kind of over. But onboarding is not about getting them to the start date. Onboarding is about accelerating the time till they get to full potential, full performance and effectiveness. So onboarding is probably going to go another 90 days at least. You want to be able also 
to get a chance week to week to ask your team how the new direct is doing to see if you want to change your message in any given week or to highlight things they're doing or not doing that maybe relate to the message. And this week it's over communication. So you'll ask everybody in their one-on-ones, how's the new guy working out? You know, how's he doing so far? What's your sense of the new guy? Any concerns about the new guy? What do you like about the new guy? Pretty standard stuff, but that's an important part of being a team as well. Everybody being sensitive to a new person is joining. And if you only have a five-person team, you've added a fifth person to your team. You're talking about, what is that, going from five to four? That's a 25% increase in the size of the team. That's significant. It's enormous, yeah. So asking everybody and asking a series of questions and sort of creating a collage of answers to get a sense of how things are going, you'd be crazy not to do that to maximize the value. You might say, I don't, I don't have time for this. I, I just, you know, I'm too busy. We get that. We understand time is our most precious commodity and you can pay us now or you can pay us later. Uh, and the payment now is cheap and the payment later can be dear. Absolutely. Now you suggest that um, this meeting be the first meeting of the morning. Why is that? Yeah, it's simple, really. If you want to send a message that a meeting carries special meaning, ask that it be the first one of the day for you and the person you're meeting with or the group. They'll probably have thought specifically about uh, the meeting the night before. It's been my experience. I wish I had hard data on this, but I have pretty strong anecdotal evidence that meetings are prepared for in order of A, their earliness in the day, and there's a step down between the first meeting and the second and the second and the third. That is exacerbated if meetings are back-to-back. And B, if somebody has a long time for preparation immediately before that meeting. Meaning if you do have a long time, even if it's late in the day, you can actually still be well-prepared for that meeting. I think that's just human nature. I think people run out of steam preparing whatever. doesn't matter. Uh, that's been my experience in 30 years of working in organizations. And so... The tone-setting meeting you're going to be having is probably the most important meeting in terms of the long-term that this new direct is going to have. So uh, it's worth it to send a message that that's so by doing it first thing in the morning. And if I can, Michael, just continue and say, same thing with sending a meeting request. You don't have to do it, but we recommend it. You know, it's a simple thing, but why not find out how your direct responds to meeting requests? Find out how quick she is with emails to the boss. I'm always amazed when people don't know that there are rules about email. There are cultural rules that have been adapted. You know, a good a good example of a cultural rule that was never formalized, that isn't written down anywhere, but everyone takes it for granted through the value of culture, modern human culture, at least in the United States in a business context, if you meet someone for the first time, you stick out your hand. To not do so would be awkward. In fact, that's how you know it's culture is if you do something different and it becomes awkward in some way. So in your culture, maybe when it comes to email, people don't know that there's a fairly well understood email rule that says you're obligated to know everything in your email within 24 hours of your receipt. And look, I hear a lot of people say, I, I, I get so much email. I actually now, Mike, am beginning to believe that people don't get as much email as they think. People tell me, well, I get 50 emails a day. Well, 
I mean, that is seriously piker territory in my experience. And if you're getting 50 emails a day, that is not anywhere near what I would call an email culture. I know people in Silicon Valley who get three, four, 500 emails a day. Now, I'll also say, Mike, as an aside, recently I was at a client and we had to use the client's laptop. And in order to do something, in order to set the laptop up for my presentation, they had to go on the web and they clicked on the link for their email address. And there were 100 emails there that were unopened on the front page of their email and 80% of them were spam or personal or consumerish or commercial. I right, thought it was right. really, really funny. So I maybe people count emails differently. I don't know. But there's two rules about email. One is you have to know what's in it within 24 hours. Uh, so it's pretty easy to figure out. Uh, and the second thing is you have 48 hours to respond. That's the rule in email, which should tell you something about why email isn't urgent. And... The, other, the next rule is there is an assumption that because email is an inbox and therefore work, uh, and in fact, I will tell you as an aside about inboxes that most people previous to email had a physical inbox and email became a second inbox and people realized how much they hated the second inbox. And so as a general rule, when I hear about software that creates another inbox for people, I immediately think the hurdle for that piece of software is enormous. Creating more inboxes for people is not good. But anyway, you've got 48 hours to respond. And if you're smart, you're going through your inbox, attempting to triage and prioritize things. You're certainly, hopefully, not doing your email in chronological or reverse chronological order. And so, therefore, you have 48 hours to respond, certainly, to emails from your boss. Yeah. And, and by the way, Mark said 24 hours. You didn't say five minutes, folks. So... We're not suggesting at all that you sit on your inbox all day long, which many, many people do to my constant uh, annoyance. Actually, Mike, I've talked to some people about that. They don't think they do. They say, well, I don't do it all day long. I'm in meetings and everything else. No, no. You have low-grade email anxiety. Legia, okay? And I made that up, by the way. (laughs) And I know you're doing email quote, all the time, unquote, because the moment you walk out of that meeting, you light up mail on your phone. Right. And in fact, I think some people don't realize how seriously they have a problem with email until they go to a meeting where they're not allowed to use their phones and they realize they're reaching for the phone or they're thinking, maybe I need to get my laptop. And then finally, after about an hour, if the meeting's a long one, they realize, oh, I'm finally into this meeting because I've lost the urge to check my phone 20 times. Um, okay. That was all about email. We could go on forever about email and folks, if you, we, we have plenty of podcasts on email. I think the first one was named got email question mark. Yeah. As a like, kind of a got milk kind of thing. Just stupid. We, 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 yeah, we're not marketing folks. <laughs> yeah. Forgive us. Maybe we renamed the podcast. Yeah. Mike's being nice folks. It's not we, it was me. I named all the podcasts for years and regret five or six of them, I think. All that said, some of you would say, ah, that's a little too formal. And I would agree that uh, it's more formal than normal day-to-day operations for many places. And, you know, we are all for informality in many parts of day-to-day work lives. I'm I'm all for it. And informality that's sort of relaxed, uh, that a lot, that people, I think, sometimes mistakenly associate with creativity and friendliness and so on. 
I think that informality is good. It's highlighted. It's appreciated when there are certain meetings, communications, processes that are actually formal. It reminds them. It gives you a way to distinguish the type and mode and content of certain communications. And those meetings are imbued with some extra significance. Look, two years from now, you're going to completely forgot that you spend the extra time that week during the early days with your direct talking about your priorities. But it seems to me that after you put all that hard work into hiring, why then throw bad money after good and miss the opportunity to send a few special messages that will resonate for years? And if, in fact, your direct goes off track, and I hope that never happens to you, but if it does, and they go off track against the values that you have now communicated, it is much easier to have direct and tough and no-nonsense conversations with them because now you have communicated as opposed to just telling them you're disappointed they didn't figure it out on their own. And as someone suggested to me once, if you really have a Machiavellian streak, you will pick a date having looked at their calendar before you send the meeting request where they have a meeting conflict with a peer and see whether or not they move that meeting to be able to make your meeting. I know some people are losing their minds right now, but there are managers who do that. So look, 30-minute meeting. Don't be late. Even better, be waiting in your office when they come in. If it's a phone me meeting because you're traveling or they're traveling, set it up on a meeting bridge and dial in two or three minutes early so when they dial in inevitably late, you're already there. Yeah, for God's sake, don't start the, the relationship with your directs by being late to meetings that you have placed particular significance on. We talked about it earlier in some you know in terms of scheduling it etc first meeting of the day don't be late come on next is um you've already sent guidance with the meeting request that's another reason that you're going to want an update on how things are going so in a way this is quasi onboarding for the direct a uh, chance for you to touch base on that you can call the meeting guidance or update or check in or feedback but the point is, make clear the meeting's purpose is twofold. Hearing from them about how they're doing and you giving new guidance in a particular area, perhaps. I've seen it happen that new hires are somewhat less than 100% open with comments. Every once in a while, you get someone who doesn't have a filter. I think that's not too big a cause for concern if you haven't built high trust and, you know, they don't really truly know what kind of boss you're going to be, and they're hedging their bets, and that's probably smart. You may think you've clicked with them really, really well, but they've probably had one or two experiences in the past where they were sold a bill of goods and then discovered that, yeah, no, it's not heaven, it's a sweatshop. And so they've learned that lesson, and so they've been taught to be wary. Remember, if you're managing someone you're managing them, and they bring to your relationship every bad manager relationship they've ever had before. Now, full disclosure, they also bring every good manager relationship that they've had before, but the bad ones stick out because people feel at risk with the people in power above them. And let's be honest, there are a lot of bad managers. So when you're asking questions, be willing to probe a little bit. So you might start off with something simple like, where are you on your onboarding task list? Tell me about uh, a little bit about your interaction with your teammates. What meetings have you gone to? By the way, I had 
somebody say, Mark, I was really disappointed. I asked what meetings they'd been to in the last week, and the person looked at their phone. I said, that, that wouldn't bother me. I'd have to look. You know, we're recording this on a Saturday morning uh, when it's nice and quiet. You know, if you asked me what meetings I went to Tuesday morning, mm, it'd be a stretch. Unless it was a standing meeting, right? Yeah, Friday morning I would, but not Tuesday. So might also ask what deadlines do you have this week? How are you doing with those deadlines? Are you green? Are you amber? Are you red? Anything surprising you? Anything concerning you? And again, in the same way that when you ask your staff about this, it's unlikely that any one answer is going to be illuminating. Our guidance, as you might imagine, is write everything down and pay attention to trends. If your new direct mentions that she's struggling to fit in two to three times with different folks, Make sure to ask the team about their sense of her fitting in and then ask yourself, what can I do to help that? Because fitting in, even though it's not on her, won't be on her annual review, is an enormous part of acculturation and effectiveness long-term. Absolutely. Folks, we often say the only thing worse than an open position is filling it with the wrong person. The only thing more heartbreaking than that is giving an offer, having somebody accept it, and having them take another offer between that time and the time they come to work for you, meaning you have to start all over after you've already found the person you want. If you want to become more effective at hiring, going through the process, interviewing, creating questions, asking questions, listening, making decisions, onboarding people, you've got to come to our Effective Hiring Manager Conference, and we're doing them throughout the United States through the remainder of 2019. Come see us and learn how to do the most important job a manager does well. And then um, our last point is giving guidance about over-communicating, which nobody does, surprisingly, because it's so important. Yeah. Horseman's second law, more communication is better. Many new hires in our experience, almost everybody except the high eyes who talk, 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 talk have all kinds of reasons to not communicate. They don't know the right way, which medium your team uses for which messages, whom to tell, when is a face-to-face -face necessary, when do I have to check emails, what's the rule here about emails, which, by the way, I don't know, do people, does everybody except me necessarily know where that goes in onboarding? What situations call for special efforts? When would I wake the boss up at home? Does the boss want me to keep her posted when I'm solving a problem or only when I've solved it or, you know, when I'm about to solve it? I don't know. Bosses are different. And then, of course, when the person doesn't do it right and there's some risk for the boss or a colleague, what they say is, why would you do it that way? Well, they have good reasons. You you hired them, so you blessed your their previous career decisions. So the reason they do it that way is that's what seemed reasonable or that's the way they did it before and the culture somewhere else was different. That's one of the reasons why uh, one of the screening factors ought to be the quality of the organizations they worked at previously. And, you know, what, what have they learned other places? I've said before that going to work for a big company early in one's career is very helpful to understand how large organizations grow. If you've worked for two smaller companies and then you're finally at a small company that starts to grow, you don't know what it's like in a bigger firm and you don't know necessarily how to build systems and processes around it. 
I've had a lot of people tell me I'm wrong because, you know, I want a person who's only been in a small company because that way they can create this new company that we're going to do, you know, as we grow. Yeah, good luck with that. Humans have been organizing for thousands of years and there are some things you can learn. Now, certainly there are things you cannot do that you don't like about big companies. But I'd be willing to bet if you and your buddies are building an organization and you're not thinking about the organization because you don't want to be like other big companies who don't have great cultures, you're going to make the choices that will make you have not a great culture. And so all of those questions in the direct's mind combine with the fear of being perceived as not knowing these things. And so the new direct feels, I'm going to be wrong one way or the other, so I'd rather not be wrong doing something wrong. I'd rather be told later, if I am in fact wrong, that I was wrong afterwards. Basically, new hires more often than not choose the sin of omission rather than the sin of commission. They're afraid of being thought ignorant and asking questions, even though that was one of the pieces of guidance that we suggested in one of your earlier meetings. Or of being the boy who cried wolf, right? Oh, I've got a concern here. What about this? What about that? I want to over-communicate. Suddenly, nobody listens to the new guy anymore because he's always complaining. Or chicken little, right? In the event of mistakes or uncertainty or problems, hey, could this mean that the server's going to go down tomorrow on Sunday? No, probably not. This is a relatively routine fault and somebody will fix it within five minutes. Oh, look there, I just got a text that fixed. So now you get the impression that the new guy is, you know, he has knee-jerk reactions to everything that's a little bit wrong. So he's saying, I don't want that. You know, I want to be seen as competent. And so they choose to under-communicate about things. It's normal. It's not bad. And you have to work harder. We have to work harder as managers to say, it's okay to over-communicate. You're never going to get in trouble for over-communicating with me. But boy, couldn't you get in trouble for under-communicating. The problem with that for us as managers is we don't learn of patterns developing in the direct's habits. We don't have enough oversight and we don't get a chance to correct them early. And what we're trying to do here is there are three reasons, three things we're trying to do. We're trying to send a message that the new direct's learning will be stunted without communication, that they don't know enough yet to know what the precisely right amount of communication should be in their new digs, which is your place. And that communication, believe it or not, is the primary behavior of high-performing teams. High-performing teams are bound together by trust, and trust through humans is achieved through communication. It is far easier to get someone to cut back on over-communicating later than it is to teach them to start communicating more after they've already learned that they do better when they communicate less. Even if there was no risk in them communicating, if they don't communicate and they don't get in trouble, they perceive there to have been a risk that they avoided. So it's a, it's a false win that they get, but it inculcates in their head the idea that less communication is better. Let's keep your head down. Australians can certainly know this. It's tall poppy syndrome, right? As well, that we, we found that there are three points worth making, um, bits of guidance that are helpful in making this point. Put them together in whatever way works best for you and your direct. First, the theory, and I think a little bit of derivation is good. Maybe, maybe that's just me. But the theory underlying over-communication derives from communication quantity. 
there are three amounts of communications on any task, subject, topic, context, whatever, that are possible. Either you could do too much, you do too little, or you do exactly the right amount. Well, exactly the right amount is nearly impossible to achieve because the sender and receiver probably disagree in most situations on what exactly the right amount is. So, too much and too little. Since many professionals see communication as more work, but communication isn't measured or evaluated in such a way as to be beneficial in organizational evaluations, comms can often be seen as taking away from the real work. Right. I've had people tell me that before. Do you want me to report on or do you want me to actually do it? Oh, that's that's one of my all-time favorite sort of jokes. Well, boss, what do you want me to do? You want me to do work or you want me to report on things? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's the answer. Let me over-communicate. Yes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what ends up happening is the default is too little communications. But most everybody agrees that problems occur when things are not communicated early and often. So despite the incremental cost of communicating about work, it's still better to over-communicate to reduce the danger of creating a larger problem later, which will, of course, require even more communication and communication that will be fraught with tension and negative energy. Look, over-communication is the difference between wellness, which is good, and treating an illness, or eating right versus the pain of going on a diet. So you can have too much or too little, your choice. Well, the answer is always going to be too much. Now, some of you, if you're a high C, you're saying, no, I'd rather have too little. Well, that's a case where you're being short-sighted. And I know that what this means in some cases is more email. But if you become more efficient in email, you can handle a doubling of your email volume and still get it done in 90 minutes a day. Second of the three points is most professionals don't know the rule that work isn't done until it's communicated to the rest of the organization. Work that is done sitting on your desk but hasn't been communicated, hasn't been filed, hasn't been uploaded or whatever is technically in the organization's mind not done. If you don't tell someone, a new hire, that hey, when your work is done on a given task, it's really important that you communicate about it because done work that's not communicated isn't done. And so if you don't tell them, they won't learn to let other people know they've completed a task. That's my favorite. That's why we have an entire podcast about turning tasks into deliverables. If you've ever assigned to your direct, hey, would you please review my document here, make sure it's okay. And that could be code, it could be PowerPoint, it could be Excel, it could be Word, whatever. And you say, I'd love to have it back by Wednesday noon because I got a Thursday presentation. They say, great, no problem. They're busy, but they find time to do it and it's done. And then Wednesday at three o'clock, you go to their desk and you say, hey, did, did you finish that thing? And they say, yeah, yeah, I finished it yesterday afternoon. Well, why didn't you tell me? Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, you know. Well, one of the reasons they didn't tell you was the task you assigned was reviewing not getting back to you by Wednesday noon with their review. Any manager worth his or her experience will tell you that one of the most frustrating things in the world is go around looking for already completed work. Now, I agree, people should know, but the behavior in organization proves to us that either people don't know or it doesn't, knowing doesn't matter. What matters is the behavior. Oh, wait, it's all about behavior. Heard that before. 
Yeah. Look, no one individual creates value for an organization. It takes many, many people to deliver value. The communication about completed work that takes a moment to get it done is one of the organizational taxes we all pay that is well worth the resultant massive productivity gains that organizing gives us. Remember, value and results always happen outside of the organization, while most of us are working on things that are a value, tasks that are internal to the organization. If you're working for somebody who's still inside the organization and the person who's going to consume your work is somebody who's inside the organization, you're not delivering value directly. You're probably two or three degrees of separation from delivering value directly. It's the nature of organizations. Look, we recommend you share with your direct our guidance on how to assign work tasks. And that's specifically guidance bullet number four, which is include status reporting with the task that turns tasks into deliverables. Finally, you want to share with them that without enough communication, they miss opportunities to learn what's best. They learn about, they miss learning about the culture, about working with individuals, and also about systems and processes. If their peers or you hear or read or see less communications from them, everyone has missed opportunities to show them how it's done in your culture. Now, let me add something here, a, sort of a final note. A lot of directs are going to resist or question this guidance. I mentioned disc high Cs that are not natural. They're not great communicators. And they say, well, you know, I, I don't want to burden everyone with too many emails, texts, comms, and so on. And what I will tell you is there's usually a hidden selfishness there. They're attempting to defend without you realizing it, their own natural way of doing things, which is not to do this stuff. Here's a way to respond to that. You're right. That's a potential problem. You don't want to irritate people, but I'd rather have that problem and spend some time refining how much is too much rather than wonder what your status is, have others not know how you're doing, have others and me not know what you're doing. Over-communicating is just part of the learning process for you with our culture. Agreed. Simple. For someone who's not necessarily a great communicator, right? Yeah. You know, I think for a lot of you, a high D boss would probably say, look, if you're going to get in trouble, you're going to get in trouble for not communicating enough. Okay. If people give you a hard time for over-communicating, I'll make sure I sort them out. <laughs> right. I'd rather know than not know. And I'd rather have early notice rather than after the fact. And it's not that I don't trust you. It's that we all are smarter when we all know more about what's going on. You don't get to work on an island here. No man is an island unto himself. Each is a part of the continent, a piece of the main. And uh, you're not here to work by yourself for yourself. We're connected. And the behavior that connects us is communication. And if we want to be a high-performing team, we're going to have to over-communicate compared to almost every other team you've ever been on. And I'm willing to put effort and attention and measurements behind that. And I want you to as well. Well said. All right, my friend. Thanks, partner. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you all next week. In the meantime, have a great one. So long. 